Hi folks, I'm Alan Watt and this is Cutting Through the Matrix on June the 29th, 2014. Right away I'd like to mention the massive geoengineering which has gone on and has been continuously now since 98. It's been pretty well daily across a good part of the planet. And of course the weather you can obviously see is well controlled in most parts of the world today. So we're going through massive changes. We won't see summers in places like Canada like we used to have, or even in Europe for that matter, where at the end of the fall, a lot of the grass and parks and so on would turn a kind of hay-coloured brown as it was kind of burned by the sun. Those days are all over. And uh, today, of course, we've got more and more rain in a lot of parts of, the, of the Canada and other countries, and Europe too is getting it as well. And uh, we're, we're well under weather control. And of course, there are many other effects apart from controlling the weather, believe you me, because the big boys who have got massive access to your massive amounts of taxation, and there was endless supply of cash, have no problems uh, taking the cash for all the different projects. And they're like a many bangs for one buck sometimes, so I'm sure they're doing a lot more with the spring than just altering the weather. Here where I am in Canada, we had a six-month solid of snow, uh, no thaw, and uh, straight into rain. And then every so often, if you get one sunny day or partially sunny day, you'll always have the trails around in the milky sky with the trails uh, by the spring. Uh, but you all, you, you'll you definitely get uh, four or five days of continuous rain if you have one half-decent day. That seems to be the pattern, and it has been for at least five years now. It's getting worse and worse until it's pretty well miserable. But uh, that's the way it's planned to be, to save us all, of course, from global warming. <laughs> Uh, meanwhile, we've had the coldest temperatures all through the winter that I've ever had in Canada, and a lot of old-timers say that uh, they've never seen it since the 60s and, and maybe even before that. Uh, and today we have uh, temperatures going down to the, the 40s, and sometimes 40 degrees at night here in the middle and the end of June. So that's how bad it is. Now, for the last few talks I've given, I've mentioned power and control and those in control, and how everything that's happening today was planned generally before most folk were born by big committees, big think tanks, international committees working with these think tanks, the foundations behind them that supply many of them with money, and they're matched dollar for dollar with your tax money as well. Because the control and the, and the, the, the manipulation of the masses is nothing new. It's a very, very old idea, and it really took blossom and came out uh, openly, I'd say, in the 1800s. In fact, perhaps more so openly, because back then they didn't have the so-called nice etiquettes to, to conform to. They could simply go ahead and do things from government right down to local levels, and the people obeyed. And most of the folk were illiterate, actually, uh, or semi-illiterate at the very least. And they had no idea. They just were taught to obey, obey. Authority used brute force when they had to with impunity. And uh, it wasn't until really after World War II that people started to see what they thought was for the first time a semblance of freedom and even liberal freedom in its true sense, not its, its political party sense today, where they could do things, say things, and discuss things that were perhaps forbidden before. But uh, that's been taken away gradually, too, under different guises, including terrorism, which, of course, expands uh, on its books. Once it's in the books, it expands to, can, to, to, to take in lots of other, other things which the governments don't want. And I mean governments, plural, because they all work in concert. We really do have uh, way more than just the embryo of global government here. It's in place and it has been for a long time. The transatlantic deals that they've been doing for even since World War One and working on before World War One to the present day uh, were all part of that. And I've given talks in the past about that. So, as I say, here we are in the 21st century and we're going full steam ahead for the century of change. And this is it, where all the big changes of training the people now back into simply obeying authority, don't think about those in power, uh, just obey. If you notice, in fact, 
many politicians now are pretty well hidden from the general public, yet the occasional statements put out by their, their marketing departments, the Prime Minister or President said this, and, and it's a little paragraph somewhere. This is training you that, that uh, not to be involved, to leave this super elite at the top uh, to do their serious work while you do your, your little stuff at the bottom. That's basically how you're being trained into the authoritarian society. And as I say, the big players that helped form this present culture and planned these present changes, including the cultural changes that would have to take place to bring the big plan through, the mass immigration of all countries in Europe and and North America, uh, literally, they said, would uh, would have bigger movements of people eventually than even that of the Industrial Revolution, when people were uprooted uh, by the millions and forced into the big cities, to, to work in the slave factories. With scientific techniques being used on the general population of massive propaganda, incredible marketing, uh, psychologists working with the marketing companies and the PR uh, machines too for all uh, levels of governance, including even your local police. In fact, it always comes to a police spokesperson and it's a person who's generally who someone's trained in marketing how to to lessen the impact of, of a truth by omission, etc., to make it palatable, palatable to the public. That's how it really works. It's quite, quite a simple technique, in fact. And it works all the time. And it's given all the time. And it's in daily, it's, you know, see nothing but uh, a public relations spokesperson said this or that, whatever it happens to be. And we're just used to it. We've been trained to be used to this kind of thing. Now, the elite back in the 1930s had already been studying the Soviet system intensely. They were also studying the rise of what they called Nazi Germany or Socialist Germany, National Socialism, and they looked and watched at these big propaganda techniques being used. And the Soviets really used it first from the very beginning uh, by brute force, by the terror, the Red Terror, which they used. They'd already tried that, of course, in the French Revolution, the Reign of Terror. And that's, a, that's the first thing that they do after the revolution, is to make sure people obey by simply being terrified of disobeying and uh, uh, the, the consequences and penalties it had, which were always extreme and well-publicized, which cowed everybody else into conformity. Now, when we look at two, at, say, people like uh, Aldous Huxley, the brother of Julian Huxley, uh, Aldous Huxley, had written Brave New Worlds, and he also wrote Brave New World Revisited, and the 1950s he wrote that, the second one. And he went through it in the scientific way, rather than a story form, to show you why such a system can be brought in, how it can be brought in, and, and it shows you the techniques which, of course, were well understood even back then, the 1930s. And it's still the same techniques today because these truths are really um, eternal. What works is, the, the Plato said, in one generation the techniques are used to make them do something, people do something or comply with something, uh, can be reused over again if you use the same sequence in the format because it's all formula, you see. Introduce it without changes, that kind of formula, uh, even though the topic can be different or the purpose can be different and you'll achieve the results that you want. So, in other words, humanity in itself doesn't really change. The human mind hasn't changed. And we're human creatures, and we share a lot of things in common. And the big boys, of course, study us intensely through behaviorists and psychologists and neuroscientists. There's hidden cam. Now it's even fantastic with all the the, the, the CTTV cameras everywhere in streets and cities. And we're, we're intensely studied in every situation for professionals who then use these techniques to manipulate us. It's, it's rather amazing, really. And the public have been trained now to be used to be on, being on camera, wherever they are, in cities especially. And it's now in towns, of course. Now, this part here is in Brave New World Revisited, is page 54, when he talks about democracy. Now, remember, these guys, as I always say, they speak with a forked tongue. They speak to their own class, and they also publish these books that anyone can read, uh, knowing that most folk will only see the bits that they want to see, and they they don't take in uh, the the bits between the lines, you might say, that are of vital importance to those who are in the business of controlling uh, nations. 
and continents even. But he said here that democratic institutions are devices for reclining or reconciling social order with individual freedom and initiative and for making the immediate power of the country's rulers subject to the ultimate power of the rules. Now, that's the ideal form of, of democracy he's talking about, which really hasn't been in existence. And the little bit we had came in after World War II, as I say, a little bit after World War I under social reforms, but it was more of a show. The same elite were still in power. They don't have to get elected into power because the, the politicians aren't the bosses. And never have been. But it says, the fact that in Western Europe and America, these devices have worked, and it is written in the 50s, remember, all things considered not too badly, is proof enough that the 18th century optimists were not entirely wrong. Given a fair chance human beings can govern themselves and govern themselves better, though perhaps with less mechanical efficiency, then they can be governed by authorities independent of their will. And it's true, we can be, if we have all this incredible training and indoctrination taken off our backs. And you have other economic conditions and so on. It says here, given a fair chance, I repeat, for the fair chance is an indispensable prerequisite. No people that pass that passes abruptly from a state subservience under the rule of a despot to the completely unfamiliar state of political independence can be said to have a fair chance of making democratic institutions work. Again, no people in a precarious economic condition has a fair chance of being able to govern itself democratically. And here's the key too, he says, liberalism, and I mean old-fashioned liberalism, to speak your thoughts, your purpose of mind without being stoned by a crowd or an opposing group or something like that. So liberalism flourishes in an atmosphere of prosperity and declines as declining prosperity makes it necessary for the government to intervene even more frequently and drastically in all the affairs of its subjects. And that's very important to understand that. A little a little uh, paragraph, but liber- liberalism flourishes in an atmosphere of prosperity and declines as declining prosperity makes it necessary for the government to intervene ever more frequently and drastically in the affairs of its subject. So we're seeing this today, of course, because uh, the same boys that planned the Soviet revolution, they planned uh, uh, and they financed uh, Nazi Germany, by the way, to to rise up. And they financed into being the United Nations, NATO and all other uh, different groups, of course. And they're still running the world today. They're running the present wars today. These guys are still in control and their descendants are still in control and they have their big, big plans for the future and they don't plan to have a democratic society. I've mentioned before many times that the Club of Rome, one of their major think tanks, has stated over and over again that, 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 that democracy would never work and they have some uh, truths on their side in that there are so many different groups now all clamoring for power, money and so on and tax money uh, for more power uh, that they, they could never ever peacefully coexist. And there are radical groups out there too and the political uh, fringes of the different political spheres. So we know that's true to an extent. But that's all been encouraged again by the same power elite who helped to fund all these groups into, in fact, create them, these particular groups that are all opposing each other to show you, to prove that democracy won't work. It won't work if you have to keep funding new radical groups that demand power and, and rights and special rights. Because today it's not equal rights are after. Everyone with, 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 uh, who's after rights is for special rights above the ordinary person. And that's why they get so much funding too. And once they have the rights, what happens? the funding keeps going. So why do you keep funding them if they have their rights, etc., etc.? These same people brought you, as I say, uh, the free trade idea, they've been on the go for a hundred years with this whole idea, pushing it and pushing it and planning it and figuring out all the different fallouts from free trade, including the nations that, were, that would be forced into it. And the same guys drafted up the integration for Europe, a non-political party, a group, actually a, a private group, a club you might call it, drafted up the, the plans for the integration of the whole of Europe. Uh, and for the European Parliament to eventually be uh, set up. 
they also uh, drafted up the one for the NAFTA agreements, and that the same boys worked on the free trade, the Trans-Pacific Partnerships, etc., etc. It's always the same groups that put them out, and they draft up the the, the, the big uh, agreements and hand it to the governments to sign. And they've actually admitted that in Canada in 2000. And, and ten, actually, that, that actually two thousand and six, I think it was, or seven, they admitted that when they came on television, and, and a private group, non-elected, unknown by most of the general public, um, drafted all of that up. They also, as I say, understood that with free trade and so on, uh, you would have be deindustrialized. That was always a plan to deindustrialize the Western countries, and replace it with what they call a service economy. And they talked about in the 70s that a, a service economy where you buy things, import stuff from abroad and resell them, pass them around, you might say, um, can only survive for a, a limited period of time. Well, welcome to the end of the limited period of time. Because when you take this one factory, for instance, one manufacturing company, and all of the subsidiary companies that supply it with different parts, etc., materials, uh, that's a lot of work just for one place. That's all gone today, and the boys have brought you free trade and gave all your trade to China and imported and made deals to import all the stuff from China, knew this would happen to all of you across Europe and North America and so on. That's the real world that we live in today. Never ever believe that they just bungle their way through and mistakes occur and they regret it after the facts. It simply doesn't happen. So say think tanks plan every piece of the strategy, they go ever all over repercussions of all kinds and to find ways to, again, calm the people and get them over that hump until they hit the next hump and on it goes and on it goes. Now Huxley goes on to talk in Brave New World Revisited about overpopulation. His kind, I call him their kind because he was of a class. His brother called his class that he belonged to, the Huxleys belonged to, the scientific elite. There was an academic elite, a scientific elite, and there also was uh, the financial elite and then the aristocratic elite too. So he belonged technically to the aristocratic elite and also the scientific elite. They saw the people uh, as a mass of people, and that's why they they talk about the populations as the masses, in fact, over and over again. And their problem for a long time was to see what would happen in the future. How could they control the masses who are always pushing for more rights or democracy or something? And uh, how could you control that and still keep power? How could you give? Could you give so much uh, freedom to the public? What would they do with it? Would they start to lose control of their own classes, which they had to have the public listen to and obey all the time? Whenever you hear the famous names of the old families, everyone suddenly goes into this subservience. Would that continue, or would it not? But he goes on to be overpopulation because, again, they've always been terrified of too many people on the planet until eventually they simply be too many to, to ever manage. Uh, that's under their management. Overpopulation and overorganization are two conditions which, as I have already pointed out, deprive a society of a fair chance of making democratic institutions work effectively. Well, we have today definitely the overorganization of all government departments that expand like cancers constantly. Whenever you create them, they very quickly try to take over more powers. Each one of them does, every branch does, right down to, the, to your police, in fact. And the more power they take on, the more uh, indispensable they, they, they think that they are. That's, that's the whole idea of taking on more power. So as we see then that there are certain historical, economic, demographic, and technological conditions which make it very hard for Jefferson's rational uh, animals, being human beings, endowed by nature with inalienable rights and an innate sense of justice to exercise their reason, claim their rights, and act justly within a democratically organized society. We in the West have been supremely fortunate in having been given uh, our fair chance of making the great experiment in self-government. I don't know when that happened because uh, I, don't, I think I must have blinked. It says, unfortunately, it now looks as though, owing to recent changes in our circumstances, this infinitely precious fair chance were being little by little taken away from us. Now, who, what us is he talking about here? He says, and this, of course, is not the whole story. These blind and personal forces are not the only enemies of individual liberty and democratic institutions. 
There are also forces of another less abstract character, forces that can be deliberately used by power-seeking individuals whose aim is to establish partial or complete control over their fellows. Now that part is true. Uh, from the, from any class whatsoever, people can, can rise up through bully tactics, overshouting other people's tactics, uh, that kind of thing, and they tend to get immense followers, actually. And there's reasons for that, which I'll go into as this talk goes on. Since 50 years ago, when I was a boy, it seemed completely self-evident that the bad old days were over, that torture and massacre, slavery, and the persecution of heretics were things of the past. Among people who wore top hats, travelled in trains and took a bath every morning, such horrors were simply out of the question. After all, we were living in the 20th century. A few years later, these people who took daily baths and went to church in top hats were committing atrocities on a scale undreamed of by the benighted Africans and Asiatics. In the light of recent history, it would be foolish to suppose that this sort of thing cannot happen again. It can, and no doubt it will. But in the immediate future, there's some reason to believe that the punitive methods of 1984 will give place to the reinforcements and manipulations of Brave New World. In Brave New World, they called it a, a painless imprisonment, where you would be uh, drugged, uh, you had a massive constant propaganda to keep you in a state of limbo, of, of emotional limbo, just to be fairly contented, regardless of the conditions you were actually living in. And that's what we're getting today, in a sense. As we go down the tubes for years now, they keep telling us how good it is and keep getting us happy little things on the news, even. They had meetings in the U.S. and Canada about that. Rather than give them all bad news, meaning realistic news, they would give you all the little trivial things that have nothing to do with reality or your life, in fact. Now, it says here in, in the book, too, but in the immediate future, there is some reason to believe that the punitive methods will, will give place to the reinforcements and the methods of brave new worlds. The techniques would be all used on the general population. There are two kinds of propaganda, rational propaganda in favor of action that is consonant with enlightened self-interest of those who make it and those to whom it is addressed. And non-rational propaganda that is not consonant with anyone's enlightened self-interest but is dictated by and appeals to passions, blind impulses, unconscious cravings or fears. And they understood enough back then of the human mind, believe you me, they understood the human mind all right, of the primitive part that's in all human nature. This is blind impulses, unconscious cravings or fears. Where the actions of individuals are concerned, there are motives more exalted than enlightened self-interest but where collective action has to be taken in the fields of politics and economics, enlightened self-interest is probably the highest of effective motives. If politicians and their constituents always acted to promote their own uh, or their country's long-range self-interest, this world would be an earthly paradise. As it is, they often act against their own interests, meaning to gratify their least creditable passions. The world, in consequence, is a place of misery. Propaganda in favor of action that is consonant with enlightened self-interest, appeals to reason by means of logical arguments based upon the best available evidence fully and honestly set forth. And that's propaganda that comes along to try and persuade you of what's the best or better things or course of action to take. Uh, they call it nudging as well, even on your computers. Uh, the, the computers actually will, will try to nudge you to look at particular stories and things like that. And that's to make sure that you have the proper indoctrination as you think you're just passing your time. This is propaganda in favor of action dictated by, uh, by the impulses that are below self-interest, offers false, garbled, or incomplete evidence, avoids logical argument, and seeks to influence its victims by the mere repetition of catchwords, slogans, and so on, by the furious denunciation of foreign or domestic scapegoats, and by cunningly associating the lowest passions with the highest ideals, so that atrocities are perpetuated in the name of God, and in the most cynical kind of real politic becomes a matter of religious principle and patriotic duty. In other words, authoritarian in a sense. In John Dewey's words, a renewal of faith in common human nature and its potentialities in general and in its power in particular to respond to reason and truth is a, a sure bulwark against totalitarianism than a demonstration of material success or a devout worship of special legal and political forms. 
the power to respond to reason and truth exists in all of us, but so unfortunately there's a tendency to respond to unreason and falsehood, particularly in those cases where the falsehood evokes some enjoyable emotion or where the appeal to unreason strikes some answering cause in the primitive subhuman depths of our being. In certain fields of activity, men have learned to respond to reason and truth pretty consistently. The authors of learned articles, uh, learned articles do not appeal to the passion of their fellow scientists and technologists. They set forth what, to their best uh, of their knowledge, is the truth about some particular aspect of reality. They use reason to explain the facts they have observed and support the, their view, uh, points of view with arguments that appeal to reason in other people. So he's talking about the difference between using reason to persuade. But again, too, he's always hinting or telling you, actually, that only the intellectual can understand and, and respond to reason. Uh, and he's trying to tell you that the more primitive people uh, will respond to passions, blind passions, and lose their individuality in the herd, as they say. And that, that technically is a truth as well. But also, too, this would be a truth to appeal to the herd in the first place, uh, to, to stir them up in one way or another. Something has to be, you can't just constantly tell lies to them and yell at them. Uh, if you're trying to stir them up, you have to say, respond to things which they're actually talking about and complaining about, so obviously. But this again, what Jefferson said, if a nation expects to be ignorant and free, said Jefferson, it expects what never was and never will be. The people cannot be safe without information where the press is free and every man able to read all is safe. Now, that's not really true either, because we know there are, there are self-interest groups of people, self-interested, who can be awfully wealthy, even collectively or individually or both, and they can put incredible amounts of money and take parts of the press over, and you still think it is free, but you're getting someone else's self-interested thoughts put into yours, basically, and their spins on things as well. So even if the government steps out of the way, you've got private organizations and groups to think about too. It says the people cannot be safe without information. Across the Atlantic, another passionate believer in reason was thinking about the same thing in almost precisely similar terms. He says, here's what John Stuart Mill wrote of his father, the utilitarian philosopher James Mill. He says, so complete was his reliance upon the influence of reason over the minds of mankind whenever it was allowed to reach them, that he felt as if he if all would be granted if the whole population were able to read and if all sorts of opinions were allowed to be addressed to them by word or in writing. And if by the suffrage he could dominate a, or nominate a legislator to give effect to the opinions they had adopted, all is safe, all would be gained. Once more we hear the note of 18th century optimism. Jefferson, it's true, was a realist as well as an optimist. He knew by bitter experience that the freedom of the press can be shamefully abused. And that's true, as I say, by special groups and so on. Nothing, he declared, can now be believed which is seen in a newspaper. That was at the present time that he lived in. Everything back then in Jefferson Day was propaganda. And yet he insisted, and we can only agree with him, uh, within the pale of truth, the press is a noble institution equally the friend of science and civil liberty. Mass communication, a word, is neither good nor bad. It is simple, it's simply a force, and like any other force, it can be used either well or ill. Used in one way, the press, the radio, and the cinema are indispensable to the survival of democracy. Used in another way, they are amongst the most powerful weapons in the dictator's armory. Now remember, too, what applies to dictator can, can uh, apply to an oligarchy as well, who simply run government generation after generation. This is in the field of mass communications, as in almost every other field of enterprise, technological uh, progress has, been, has hurt the little man and helped the big man. As late as 50 years ago, every democracy or democratic country could boast of a great number of small journals and local newspapers. Thousands of country editors expressed thousands of independent opinions. Somewhere or other, almost anybody could get almost anything printed. Today, the press is still legally free, and this is back in the 1950s, but most of the little papers have disappeared. Now, I've gone through uh, the big private institution. It's got a lot to do with this. They're all an issue for international affairs. 
and the Council on Foreign Relations, which is the same branch for America and other parts of the world, and how uh, the Rockefellers who ran them, uh, they, were the, they helped start it up in the States, uh, the U.S. branch, and it also monopolized industry, also monopolized the media, and they, had, uh, they brought in uh, top experts to do surveys, do their statistics and studies and all the rest of it, and think tanks, and they found that if they can control, uh, at that time, only, only 30 uh, newspapers across the whole of the U.S. or North America, uh, then all the other papers would follow and copy what they said. So, as I say, you cannot be utopian about anything because, believe you me, there are always other parties with their own particular self-interest who have their own particular agendas and don't want the public to be free to read any bit of real, true news that, that happens to be obtained. Huxley goes on to say, in regards to propaganda, the early advocates of universal literacy in a free press envisaged only two possibilities, that propaganda might be true or it might be false, did not foresee what in fact has happened, above all in the Western capitalist democracies, the development of a vast mass communications industry concerned in the mean neither with the true nor the false, but with the unreal, the more or less totally irrelevant, in a word, they failed to make, take into account man's almost infinite appetite for distractions. Actually, there was a group that did certainly not forget that and, and supplied them. That's the culture industry, of course, because they well understood from ancient Greek philosophy and so on that if you put people in cities, you must give them lots of entertainment. Because even back then, the city-state was, city was a, an artificial creation. Was, they couldn't produce anything. Uh, everything was brought into it. It says, in the past, most people never got a chance of fully satisfying this appetite for entertainment, that is. They might long for distractions, but distractions were not provided. Christmas came in but once a year. Feasts were solemn and rare, and there were few readers and very little to read. And the nearest approach to the neighborhood movie theater was a parish church, where the performances, though frequent, were somewhat monotonous. For conditions even uh, remotely comparable to those now prevailing, we must return to Imperial Rome where the populace was kept in good humour by frequent gratuitous doses of mainly, many kinds of entertainment, from poetical dramas to gladiatorial fights, from recitations of Virgil to all-out boxing, from concerts to military reviews and public executions. But even in Rome there was nothing like the non-stop distractions now provided by newspapers, magazines, by radio, television and cinema and movies. In Brave New World, non-stop distractions of the most fascinating nature, uh, the feelies, as you call them, orgy-porgy, or lots of sex and so on, centrifugal bumple puppy, are deliberately used as instruments of policy for the purpose of preventing people from paying too much attention to the realities of the social and political situations. As you go down the tubes now, as they were saying, financially, economically, uh, you get more and more cheap, 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 uh, never-ending entertainment. Just churned out like machines churn them out. In other words, uh, the other world of religion is different from the other world of entertainment, uh, but they still resemble one another in being most decidedly not of this world. Both are distractions, both are distractions, and if lived in too continuously, both can become, in Marx's phrase, the opiate of the people, and so a threat to freedom. Only the vigilant can maintain their liberties, and only those who are constantly and intelligently on the spot can hope to govern themselves effectively by democratic procedures. A society, most of whose members spend a great part of their time not on the spot, not here and now, and in the calculable future, but somewhere else in the relevant other world of sports and soap opera of mythology and, and metaphysical fantasy, will find it hard to resist the, the encroachments of those who would manipulate and control it. And their, their propaganda today is that dictators rely for the most part on repetition, suppression and rationalization. The repetition of catchwords, which they wish to be adopted or accepted as true, and that goes for all the movements you hear in special interest groups and all of their catchwords and phrases and so on. Suppression of facts where they wish to be ignored, uh, and the arousal and rationalization of passions which may be used in the interests of the party or the state. And they use that for war, you know, um, 
uh, you, you find that Saddam Hussein was supposedly bayoneting babies in, in their incubators when they invaded Kuwait and all that nonsense. But it works every time. As the art and science of manipulation come to be better understood, the dictators of the future will doubtless learn to combine these techniques with the non-stop distractions which in the West are now threatening to drown in a, in a, sen- a sea of uh, irrelevance and irrational propaganda essential to the maintenance of individual liberty and survival of democratic institutions. Now here you find that uh, Huxley goes on to talk about the, the Nazi or Nazi tyranny uh, of Germany in the 30s and 40s. And he never goes into the, the roots much, the, the propaganda techniques that were learned by them from the Soviets because Hitler studied them awfully well. And they had lots of communications and go-betweens and, and advice from the Soviets in their early days, remember. But it says here, and so the truth is the truth regardless of who uses it. Uh, it says, at his trial after the Second World War, Hitler's Minister for Armaments, who is Albert Speer, delivered a long speech in which, with, with remarkable acuteness, he described the Nazi tyranny and analyzed its methods. Hitler's dictatorship, he said, differed in one fundamental point from all its predecessors in its history. It was the first dictatorship in the present period of modern technical development, a dictatorship which made complete use of all technical means for the domination of its own country. Through technical devices like the radio and loudspeaker, 80 million people were deprived of independent thought. It was thereby possible to subject them to the will of one man. Now remember, too, there has to be a problem there to begin with to even get the people to listen to you. And you can have glosses over that. But it says, earlier dictators needed highly qualified assistance, even at the lowest level, <clears throat> men who could think and act independently. The totalitarian system in the period of modern technological uh, development can dispense with such men. Thanks to modern methods of communication, it's possible to mechanize the lower leadership. And here's what he sees about mechanization of the lower leadership. As a result of this has been arisen the new type of the uncritical recipient of orders. And that is really what you find in all um, when tyrannies come in, those who do all the nasty, dirty, dirty jobs and are put in trial later say, I was just doing my job. They're the recipient of orders, the obedient, uncritical recipient. It says, in the brave new world of uh, my prophetic fable, technology has had advanced far beyond the point it reached in Hitler's day. Uh, consequently, the recipients of orders were far less critical than their Nazi counterparts. For more obedient, uh, far more obedient to the order-giving elites. Moreover, they'd been genetically standardized, that's eugenics coming into it, uh, and postnatally conditioned to perform their subordinate functions and could therefore be depended upon to behave almost as predictably as machines. They were specially bred uh, in incubators, basically, and uh, churned out mass-produced people in different classes for different functions. That's what they call division of labor, but he, he used eugenics to do it. As we shall see in a later chapter, this conditioning of the lower leadership is already going on under the communist dictatorships. The Chinese and the Russians are not relying merely on the indirect effort, efforts or effects of advancing technology. They're working directly on the psycho-physical uh, organisms of their lower leaders, subjecting minds and bodies to a system of ruthless and, from all accounts, highly effective conditioning. Now, here's a, a quote by Spear, too. He says, Many a man has been haunted by the nightmare that one day nations might be dominated by technical means. That nightmare was almost realized in Hitler's totalitarian system. And it says, almost but not quite. It says, the Nazis did, did not have time and perhaps did not have the intelligence and the necessary knowledge to brainwash and condition their lower leadership to it completely. Uh, this, it may be, is one of the reasons why they failed. So, in other words, a technique which could brainwash everyone right down the ladder to the very bottom uh, would be far more effective. Since Hitler's day, the armory of technical devices at disposal of the would-be dictator has been consist- considerably enlarged, as well as the radio, the loudspeaker, the moving uh, picture, the movies, the camera, and the rotary press, 
Contemporary propagandists can make use of television to broadcast the image as well as the voice of his client and can record both image and voice on spools of magnetic tape. Thanks to technological progress, Big Brother can now be almost as omnipresent as God. And it's true, you see the pictures everywhere in the movies, for instance, Brave New Worlds, of Big Brother. Since Hitler's day, a great deal of work has been carried out in these fields of applied psychology and neurology, which are the special providence or, or, or province of the propagandist and indoctrinator and the brainwasher. Remember, too, your cameras and all that you're being used to seeing everywhere are, are part of this technique, too. You're simply not seeing the face of Big Brother. What you're seeing is his, uh, basically his, his eye, his camera. It has the same effect on you subconsciously. You're being watched everywhere you go, and your behavior will, diff- will alter. They've done a lot of, again, again secret recorded uh, documentaries, secretly recorded ones, on people's behavior changing when they know they're on camera being watched in the streets and so on and so on and so on. So subconsciously, you're all being trained, and it works very, very effectively without the picture of Big Brother staring at you. The camera is Big Brother, the system. He's only talk about these guys who helped you to indoctrinate you and change your minds and prompt you and so on. In the past, these specialists in the art of changing people's minds were empiricists. By a method of trial and error, they had worked out a number of techniques and procedures which they used very effectively without, however, knowing precisely why they were effective. Today, the act of mind control is in the process of becoming a science. Well, it has since then. Incredible tax money has gone into this kind of thing, into the top uh, research to find out all about how we tick and how we think and how we come to to our conclusions and so on. In fact, most of the conclusions you have are not yours today. You see, the practitioners of the science know what they're doing and why. They're guided in their work by theories and hypotheses solidly established on a massive foundation of experimental evidence. Thanks to the new insights and new techniques made possible by these insights, the nightmare that was all but realized in Hitler's totalitarian system may soon be completely realizable. But before we discuss uh, these new insights and techniques, let us take another look at the nightmare that so nearly came true in Germany. What were the methods used by Hitler and Goebbels for depriving 80 million people of independent thought and subjecting them to the will of one man? And what was the theory of human nature upon which these terrifyingly successful methods were based? These questions can be answered for the most part in Hitler's own words. What remarkably clear and astute words they are. He writes about such vast abstractions as race, history and providence. Hitler is strictly strictly unreadable, but when he writes about the German masses and the methods he used for dominating them and directing them, his style changes. Nonsense gives place to sense, bombast to a hard-boiled and cynical lucidity. In his philosophical lucubrations, Hitler was either cloudedly well-dreaming or reproducing other people's half-baked notions. In his comments on crowds and propaganda, he was writing of things he knew by first-hand experience. In the words of his ablest biographer, Mr. Alan Bullock, Hitler was the greatest demagogue in history. Those who had only a demagogue failed to appreciate the nature of political power in an age of mass politics. As he himself said, to be a leader means to be able to move the masses. Hitler's aim was first to move the masses and then, having pried them loose from traditional loyalties and moralities, to impose upon them, with the hypnotized consent of the majority, a new authoritarian order of his own devising. Hitler wrote Hermann Roschning in 1939 as a deep respect for the Catholic Church and Jesuit order, not because of the Christian doctrine, but because of the machinery they've elaborated and controlled, their hierarchical system, their extremely clever tactics, their knowledge of human nature, and their wise use of human weakness in ruling over believers. Ecclesiasticism without Christianity uh, the, the discipline of a monastic rule, not for God's sake or in order to achieve personal salvation, but for the sake of the state and for the greater glory and power of the demagogue turned leader, this was the goal towards which the systematic moving of the masses was to lead. The first principle from which he started was a value judgment. The masses are utterly contemptible. 
They're incapable of abstract thinking and uninterested in any fact outside the circle of their immediate experience. Their behavior is determined not by knowledge and reason, but by feelings and unconscious drives. It's in these drives and feelings that the roots of their positive as well as their negative attitudes are implanted. To be successful, a propagandist must learn how to manipulate these instincts and emotions. The driving force which has brought about the most tremendous revolutions on this earth has never been a body of scientific teaching which has gained power over the masses, but always a devotion which has inspired them and often a kind of hysteria which has urged them into action. Whoever wishes to win over the masses must know the key that will open the door of their hearts. Sister made his strongest appeal to those members of the lower middle classes who had been ruined by the inflation of 1923, and that was a deliberate inflation, of course, when Germany lost World War I in 1918, and uh, at least the, uh, that's how it ended up being. And there was a revolution started within Germany, too, of communism. Uh, and then, um, of course, they had, they had the, uh, the big convention and then the big treaty was signed and so on. But Germany had to pay massive reparations, which brought on um, incredible inflation. So in the following years, in 1929, of course, too, they also had the Depression starting. And so they already had massive inflation and depression. The masses of whom he speaks between these bewildered, frustrated, and chronically anxious millions, to make them more mass-like, more homogeneously subhuman, he assembled them by the thousands and tens of thousands in vast halls and arenas where individuals could lose their personal identity, even in their elementary humanity, and be merged with the crowd. The same techniques, by the way, that are well understood in music industry and big halls and out, outside and indoor concerts, huge, huge things uh, where folk get, become hysterical, but are guided by uh, the, the manipulators, of course, not just on stage, but those around them too, lights, etc. All these techniques are, are used upon them to get a kind of behavior out of them, but they definitely lose their individuality, as you know. You find the same thing happens when uh, there's been masses, a mass excitement preceded by great advertising on a super sale somewhere, and the crowd in and they even stamp over each other in a rush. Normally they wouldn't do that, naturally, but uh, in the, when they become a crowd, they lose their individuality. But it says here, It's a man or woman who makes direct contact with society in two ways, as a member of some familiar, professional, or religious group, or as a member of a crowd. That's so so important. Groups are capable of being as moral and intelligent as the individuals who form them. A crowd is chaotic, has no purpose of its own, and is capable of of anything except intelligent action, or or capable of anything except intelligent action and realistic thinking. Assembled in a crowd, people can lose their powers of reasoning and their capacity for moral choice. Their suggestibility is increased to the point where they cease to have any judgment or will of their own. They become very excitable, they lose all sense of individual or collective responsibility. They're subject to sudden access of, uh, 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 sudden access of rage, or excess of rage, be, uh, enthusiasm and panic. In a word, a man in a crowd behaves as though he had swallowed a large dose of some powerful intoxicant. He's a victim of what I've called herd poisoning. It's also called collective poisoning. Uh, and it's also called collective uh, contamination. The communists called it that. He's a victim of what is called herd poisoning. Like alcohol, herd poisoning is an active extroverted drug. The crowd intoxicated individual escapes from responsibility, intelligence and morality into a kind of fr- uh, frantic animal mindlessness, uh, which you all know is mass hysteria. During his long career as an agitator, Hitler had studied the effects of herd poisoning or collectivism uh, and collective mindset, you might say, and had learned how to exploit them for his own purposes. He discovered that the orator can appeal to these hidden forces which motivate men's actions much more effectively than can the writer. Reading is, is a private, not a collective activity. So is thinking, of course. This is the writer who speaks only to individuals sitting by themselves in a state of normal sobriety. The orator speaks to masses of individuals already well primed with herd poison, the condition for it. They are at his mercy, and if he knows his business, he can do what he likes with them. As an orator, Hitler knew his business supremely well. He was able, in his own words, to follow the lead of the great 
mass in such a way <clears throat> uh, that from the living emotion of his hearers, his apt word, which indeed would be suggested to him, and in its turn would go straight to the hearts of his hearers. So he could convey emotion straight to him, you might say. Otto Strasser called him a loudspeaker, proclaiming the most secret desires, the least admissible uh, instincts, the sufferings and personal revolts of a whole nation. Twenty years before Madison Avenue embarked upon motivational research, as we know, behaviorism is, is part of it in marketing, um, Hitler was uh, systematically exploring the, the, and exploiting the secret fears and hopes the, of cravings, fears, anxieties and frustrations of the German masses. It's when manipulating hidden forces that the uh, advertising experts induce us to buy their wares, whether it's toothpaste, cigarettes, a, a political candidate or whatever. And it was by appealing to the same hidden forces and others uh, too dangerous for Madison Avenue to meddle with that Hitler induced the German masses to buy themselves a fewer an insane philosophy, and the Second World War. But again, too, there had to be basis for it. It never happened. It wasn't for this massive inflation and then massive depression. And again, massive immigration coming in during the Depression, too. Uh, and they felt they were all losing their, their, their home, basically, or the country, even. So it all worked together for the man to come along and see all these things and, and agitate them and become the leader. It was like an accident waiting to happen, you might say. Like the masses, intellectuals have a taste for rationality and an interest in facts. Remember, too, the Huxes were incredible snobs, but they also spoke a lot of truth because they sat in all these big top think tanks and world meetings. He says, Their critical habit of mind makes them resistant to the kind of propaganda that works so well in the majority. Amongst the masses, instinct is supreme, and from instinct comes faith. While well, the healthy common folk instinctively close their ranks to form a community of the people under a leader, it goes without saying, intellectuals run this way and that, like hens in a poultry yard. With them, one cannot make history. They cannot be used as elements composing a community. Intellectuals are the kind of people who demand evidence and are shocked by logical inconsistencies and fallacies. They regard oversimplification as the original sin of the mind, and have no use for the slogans, the qualified assertions and sweeping generalizations, which are the propaganda's stock in trade. All effective propaganda, Hitler wrote, must be confined to a few bare necessities and then must be expressed in a few stereotyped formulas. These stereotyped formulas must be constantly repeated, for only constant repetition will finally succeed in imprinting an idea upon the memory of a crowd. Such as, for instance, um, you, you have um, weapons of mass destruction, etc., etc., over and over again. You must remember, too, uh, that the leader doesn't have to be incredibly highly, uh, we call educated or even intelligent, but he can be wiry and, and wily, a very wily person uh, who is streetwise in a sense, who understands these things innately. We know that psychopaths have the same ability. They have that very, very well. And they can read people's minds. They can read the, the, the feelings of individuals or crowds. And they can manipulate the masses quite easily, too, if they put their mind to it. And they have something to benefit for, or self-gain from themselves. But the sad truth is, too, that an intellectual is often neglected by the people. And the person that's seen as a man of action, who's loud, bombastic, etc., uh, 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 is the person they'll follow, uh, often to their detriment. But it says here, in Hitler's words, the propaganda should adopt a systematically one-sided attitude towards every problem that has to be dealt with. He must never admit that he might be wrong, or that people with a different point of view might even be partially right. Opponents should not be argued with, they should be attacked, shouted down, or if they become too much of a nuisance, liquidated. The morally squeamish intellectual may be shocked by this kind of thing, but the masses are always convinced that right is on the side of the active aggressor. Very important uh, to understand that. And Huxley went on to say that the survival of democracy depends on the ability of large numbers of people to make realistic choices in the light of adequate information. A dictatorship, on the other hand, maintains itself by censoring or distorting the facts and by appealing not to reason, but to enlightened self-interest, but to passion and prejudice to the powerful hidden forces. And remember, that equally applies to oligarchies 
in democracies that run democracies because you're seeing all of these techniques used today. Constant repetition, withholding of all points of view and all the facts. That's I've never ever seen all the facts presented on anything, any argument put out by the press. Uh, you're always told what to believe and what opinion to, to conclude. It's given to you, basically. You're led to it. You're guided to it, again, scientifically, through the way it's, it's put out in psycho or neurolinguistics, as they call it now. And so um, you, I've never seen it. And the big boys today don't believe they're ever going to allow you to have what they call real democracy. Democracy isn't looking around for somebody else you've missed out to elevate up to a special position, some tiny, tiny fringe of a minority or even the, the cut-off fringe of a fringe of a fringe of a minority. And that's how bad it's getting today. That's not what democracy is. That's the pretense of what democracy is. A democracy is supposed to be for everyone, literally everyone. And that means even those collectively who are the majority in any particular democracy to have their say just the same as everybody else and their beliefs and their opinions too. We don't have that, and it looks like we never shall have it today with the techniques being used upon the public and all of us. Now, Hoxley also talks about the incredible strides that advertising and marketing have taken because they're able to go so far today, especially even back then, because of their understanding of commerce and persuading people to buy, where it's a, a political party or whatever, they exploit the subconscious fears and sell you promises and hope. The same thing is done when the economy goes bad. Politicians use the same techniques. Uh, and when they go for election, they always talk about the same things, jobs, uh, and, and so on and so on. Uh, the, the basic fears of the public. But we all have fears built into us because we're human, and these are exploited to the maximum by all parties, whether it's political or advertising or marketing companies for big corporations. It talks about, for instance, that the simple, for, for many, many years, simple uh, lanolin is used uh, for facial cream for women. Lanolin comes from sheep, it's from wool, fat, and water, which they beat up into an emulsion. And you can give it all the fancy names you want, but it says, um, it's just what he says, they give it some picturesquely voluptuous name, talk ecstatically and misleadingly about feminine beauty, and show pictures of gorgeous blondes nourishing their tissues with skin food. But Nora was very young. The cosmetic manufacturers, one of their numbers has written, are not selling lanolin, they're selling hope. For this hope, this fraudulent implication of the promise that they will be transformed or transfigured, women will pay 10 or 20 times the value of the emulsion which propagandists have so skillfully related by means of misleading symbols to a deep-seated and almost universal feminine wish, the wish to be more attractive to members of the opposite sex. The principles underlying this kind of propaganda are extremely simple. For some, find some common desire, it could be sexual, whatever it is, some widespread unconscious fear or anxiety, Think about some way to relate this wish or fear to the product you have given to, to sell. Then build a bridge of verbal or pictorial symbols over which your cons- customer can pass from fact to comp- compensatory dream and from the dream to the illusion that your product, when purchased, will make the dream come true. We no longer buy oranges, we buy vitality. We don't uh, just have a car, we buy prestige. And so with all the rest, this is in toothpaste, for example, we buy not a, uh, a mere cleanser and antiseptic, but re- released from the fear of being sexually repulsive. And vodka and whiskey, we're not buying a, a, a protoplasmic uh, poison, which in small doses may depress the nervous system in a psychologically valuable way. We're buying friendliness and good fellowship. And you're also buying party time and sex too. That's how they advertise it. The warmth of Dingley Dell and the brilliance of the Mermaid Tavern. With our laxatives, we buy the health of a Greek god, and not, not just a laxative, the radiance of one of uh, Diana's nymphs. With the monthly bestseller, we acquire culture, the envy of our less literate neighbors, and the respect of the sophisticated. In every case, the motivation and uh, uh, analyst has found some deep seated wish or fear whose energy can be used to move the consumer to part with cash, and so indirectly to turn the wheels of industry. Stored in the minds and bodies of countless individuals, this potential energy is released and transmitted along a line of symbols carefully laid out so as to bypass rationality 
and obscure the real issue. And that's what uh, visual advertising is too. It's all symbolic of something. It sells you a symbol of health, beauty, whatever it happens to be. Sometimes the symbols take effect by being disproportionately impressive, haunting, and fascinating in their own rights. Of this kind are the rites and pomps of religion. These beauties of holiness, strength, strength and faith, faith where it already exists, and where there's no faith, contribute to conversion, appealing as they do only to the aesthetic sense. So they talk about ritualistic uh, visual signs and, and so on, and parades. They guarantee neither the truth nor the ethical value of the doctrines with which they have been quite arbitrarily associated. As a matter of plain historical fact, the beauties of holiness have often been matched and indeed surpassed by the beauties of unholiness. As under Hitler, for example, the, the yearly Nuremberg rallies were masterpieces of ritual and theatrical art. Of course, we saw the same thing with Red Square and, and, and the Soviet Union too. Massive pageants and, and rolling off the massive armaments industry. and the, Again, the masses, the masses marching in step. Of, of men who'd lost their individuality by being in the military. And that's one of the first things that the military teaches you, is that you're, you're not an individual anymore. So you, you find it's uh, well been understood, well used. It works very awfully well on, on the subconscious, and very few folk can <coughs> feel, <coughs> feel to be impressed in some way or another by these mass demonstrations, which the state is perfectly aware uh, works so well on, on the people. So... I've always tried to make people think for themselves and don't just attack religion either, by the way, because remember, man is a spiritual creature in some way or another. He's always asking all the questions and as to whys of things. And often the whys were given simply aren't enough. We have to look further. But remember, too, as I said, too, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. And in other words, you have to look for it yourself. He's not talking to a crowd. He's, he's, he's not saying it's in all of you. Uh, he's, he's saying that he's telling you there's a path to thinking and finding out the answers for yourself. And I think that's the only way any, any of these particular religions can possibly work, is thinking for yourselves for, on your own path and not simply taking all the precepts of a, of a, a religion, all the doctrines, and, and believing in them because you're told to, even the things that don't make sense to you. That's rather silly, of course. So remember, think for yourselves on every every possible thing. Be careful what you buy, and don't keep buying promises. Uh, today, if to the advertiser, uh, even in pharmaceuticals and even in the herbal industry, use the same techniques of giving you a lot of promises of utopian you uh, that simply never come true. Whatever they're going to sell you is, is all basically based on hope, and um, and they're very expensive too. And uh, remember to and think about everything that you read and hear uh, and you see. Uh, think very, very carefully. Don't simply take anything at face value, especially the media or any of the stories that are certainly put out today by the media on, on some war or whatever. They're all much the same. They never tell you the truth, never tell you the truth of the wars being economic wars. And it's not for countries to benefit. It's for the big private international corporations that form the present new international feudal system, along with the very old, old aristocracies, etc. And uh, you cannot believe anything that they tell you today. The people have always been useful idiots, and it's always from the bottom ranks that they get the masses into their big militaries, the cannon fodder, the pawns in the game, and nothing has changed from thousands of years ago to the present time on that matter. Uh, you take home your little gold tin medal at the end of it, and uh, that's you, where you've lost a leg, whatever, or even your hope for living. doesn't matter. You've done what you're paid to do, and that's all you were paid to do. The big corporations end up with the resources that you help, helped to acquire for them on your behalf by using the taxpayer's money, of course. Nothing changes. It's a disgusting system, and uh, it's far, far from democracy. And personally, I cannot see democracy ever coming in because... You'll always have those organizations, powerful organizations, uh, with incredible amounts of wealth. They can network together, take over whole areas of, of information, and, and, and eventually even education. 
and indoctrinate all of you. It's a very difficult thing to find the truth today, and you've got to leave no stone unturned. And as I say, too, remember that the West and big powerful bankers in the West financed the, the rise of the Soviets uh, and also the rise of Adolf Hitler, too. Don't forget that all the so-called tyrants that would be knocking down across the Middle East and Asia were put in by the West, and they were their boys for a long, long time. The only problem is uh, the West wanted eventually all the resources, uh, and of course there was other reasons too by other outside countries that were highly interested in those particular regions uh, that are very powerful and very, very wealthy indeed too. So... There's always much, much more to something than is put across in a simplistic, one-sided propaganda that we're given. From Hamish Masyar from Ontario, Canada, it's good night to me. Your God or your gods go with you.